Welcome to episode 16 of Agents of Everything. My name is James Tripp, if you're new here and you don't know that already. And in this episode, we're going to be diving into the topic of NLP, that is Neuro Linguistic Programming. And we're going to be taking a kind of critical view of it. I'm calling the episode NLP, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Now, there's a few reasons why I'm making this episode at this time. One of them is because in a couple of days' time, I'm going to be presenting at the UK Hypnosis Convention under the title NLP, A Critical Evaluation. Now, I'm aware, as you're listening to me say that, that you might think that's somewhat of a dry, boring title, and I absolutely agree with you. I think the good, the bad, and the ugly is a better title. Uh, but I put my application in for that event after the closing date, and I fancied that that way of framing things would appeal to the kind of cognitive style of the organizers. That's a pure guess, uh, but that was my sense on it. So um, that's why that title. But it's really NLP, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So what I'm going to be sharing in this podcast episode is some of the ideas that I'm going to be sharing or some of the thoughts I'm going to be sharing uh, on Friday on my Friday presentation. Now, beyond that, there are other reasons why this is particularly pertinent. I have entered a phase in my life this year where I've been diving back into NLP, into neurolinguistics, uh, for a variety of different reasons. One of the reasons is that my daughter, who has just turned 18, is very interested in the topic. She's very interested in pragmatic psychology, practical psychological skills, stuff she can actually apply in her life. So she's very keen to learn NLP. We've done a NLP practitioner together, we both attended this year, but she's particularly keen to get my take on it. And she has encouraged me to come out of retirement as an NLP trainer. Some people listening to this may know this, but I once was an NLP trainer with the Society of NLP. And um, I think I pretty much stopped running NLP trainings in 2009. I've run one since then, about six or seven years back. But generally, I ended up moving on from NLP, integrating a lot of other stuff. I did my hypnosis without trance thing. I got into the coaching work that I was doing, all of that sort of thing, and started to get mentored from people outside of the NLP world and uh, started developing myself along some other lines. But NLP was a really big deal for me for a good decade of my life. It might sound hyperbolic when I say this and perhaps somewhat cliched, to say that it did indeed totally change my life. In fact, I'm going to trump that one in terms of hyperbole. I'm going to say right now that I, the you that you are listening to right now, would not exist without NLP, without neurolinguistic programming. Now, the reason I say that is because NLP came to me at a time in my life where I was feeling stuck. I was feeling in over my head actually, more than stuck, I was feeling desperately in over my head in a new context that I'd entered in my life. Uh, I was looking to change the direction of my life. And I um, actually got into training as an osteopath and very, very quickly, it became clear that how I was at the time, the me that I was at the time was not going to be able to handle the training. Now, as you hear that, you might think, well, that's old. Why wouldn't a person be able to handle the training? The real issue for me was I had massive, massive anxiety. I mean, like literally my anxiety was so bad that when it really triggered off, I've often described it as, as being like my brain was anesthetized. So it would like be like somebody had put some Novocaine into my prefrontal cortex and my brain would just shut down. Everything would go woolly. It's like almost the sound around me would go woolly and everything. 
and I literally couldn't interact with other human beings. So this was a really awful, really terrible thing for me. Obviously, I was training as an osteopath. I had to make my way through the training. I had to deal with other students. I had to deal with my tutors. But I also had to deal with, with prospective clients or the clients that I was going to be working with in the teaching clinic. I had to show up as a competent, capable professional, not somebody who was just literally shut down. Now, some people who are listening to this, maybe who have experienced anxiety or severe anxiety, they'll be able to relate to what I'm saying, although the manifestation might be different for them. I had a particular kind of way it would manifest in me. And those who have perhaps not experienced that will not necessarily realize how debilitating that can be. I would also say this, when I tell people this, that I used to suffer from this anxiety and that I used to be actually, I think, a pretty poor communicator, a lot of people, they don't quite believe me, right? And we all have a tendency to do this. We see people as they are, and we assume that is how they have always been. Well, NLP offered me something really powerful at a really important time. It offered me the opportunity to literally recreate myself. When I first came to NLP, which I think was 2001, maybe 2002, the promise that it gave me is that who I thought that I was was not fixed. It was not rigid. In fact, who I thought that I was on some kind of deep core level, some deep geological level, was merely a set of learnt patterns. And that those patterns could be changed, they could be modified, and I could relearn new patterns, patterns for everything. So the real mind blower for me was literally my personality, the thing I thought that I really was. Well, NLP taught me that it was a collection of patterns and they were very malleable and they could easily be changed. Okay, I've got a slightly more nuanced view on that now, but I took that and I ran with it and I did so much to recreate myself and rebuild myself. And going back to that statement that I wouldn't exist necessarily, like I wouldn't be me, the me that's speaking to you right now. The name James Tripp, the name that I go by in these podcasts and on my YouTube channel and in my coaching and in my training and all of this kind of stuff, that name is not my birth name. And I remember one of the first times that I really used a lot of the ideas from NLP, this is before I was formally trained in NLP, to recreate myself. I'll tell you the story right now. I, uh, I was applying to get work doing manual therapy in a number of uh, health clubs, sports clubs, this kind of thing, right? I had these skills. I had the basic qualifications. I wasn't qualified as an osteopath yet. I was in my first year of training as an osteopath, but I had these manual therapy qualifications, basic qualifications for sports injuries, work and sports massage. So I wanted to get some work, start practicing, working with some real clients. Trouble was I had to find somewhere to work. That meant I had to approach these places, write to them and go and have meetings. I had this issue though. My brain would shut down in a meeting and this wasn't good. So I'd had a few different meetings uh, with people and I'd gone in and my brain had shut down and obviously nothing had come of it because they think, well, this guy's like an idiot or something. He can't even string a sentence together. Um, but I had one encounter at a place called Odyssey Health and Rackets Club in Nebworth in Hertfordshire with the manager of the spa. She was called Katrina, if I remember correctly. And she was very nice, Katrina was. She was a very caring person, an understanding person. And I went to meet with her. And as I went for this meeting, we're meeting in the brasserie of the Health and Rackets Club, I could feel my brain shutting down again. Just as I was walking in, like the anesthetization of my prefrontal cortex began, it all began to shut down. 
the sound went all woolly and funny and I sort of withdrew into myself and I'm trying to conduct this meeting about me working as a professional in this place and it's just not going well. So she starts asking me questions about what I do and I just can't think of an answer. I'm giving these monosyllabic replies and I'm giving these grunts. A lot of people would have immediately dismissed me. Other people had. But she could see that I was suffering. And I think she was a very caring and compassionate person. She could see something was going on with me. And I think out of compassion, she wanted to you know, be kind and give me a second chance. So what she said to me, she said, how about, James, you come in and instead of telling me what you do, I'll get some of the girls from the spa around and you can just show us all what you do, right? Now, that was a really, really generous offer and I totally accepted it and I wrote a date down for me to come in and do this. But the truth be told, the idea of doing that was even more terrifying than going and having a conversation about it. So I walked away and, you know, my head held low and I really felt that I was at this, this fork in the road in my life, this choice point where either I really change something massive. And I mean, quickly between now and next week, when I was having this meeting where I was going to be kind of assessed, either I change something hugely, rapidly, really, really quickly, or I just gave up, right? Gave up the idea of becoming an osteopath, gave up the idea of changing the course of my life and just shuffle back into whatever past that I already knew, which was not fulfilling. It was not a fulfilling life for me. So I knew that I was going to show up next week. I had to show up as a different person. This is my belief at the time. Some people would go, oh no, just be yourself and all of this. But in my mind, it's like, no, I've got to show up as a different person. There's a sort of joke that Richard Bandler often uh, riffs on. He says, you know, why be yourself when you could be someone really worthwhile, right? And it's a cheeky bit of humor and everything, but it's like, you know, you, you can recreate yourself and it isn't a betrayal of self. Often it's a better expression of self of your deeper, truer self, if you want to riff on that idea. So I knew that I had to recreate myself and I had like a week to do it. Now, the thing is, I'd already started playing with NLP. I was not trained. I'd got a book. I needed the material in the book and I'd started playing with the ideas, just kind of applying them ad hoc as I needed to, to sort of recreate myself. But now I needed to pull out the stops. I needed to do a big bit of work very, very quickly. So here is what I did. I was running here off NLP principles. This is not an NLP technique. It's an NLP idea, NLP inspired idea. But I went home and I thought, I got to recreate myself. How do I do this? Well, I'm going to write the scene. I'm going to write the scene of the meeting that's going to happen next week. And I'm going to write me as the main character in this. And I'm going to write me as a character that absolutely handles it like a boss. So I had a few kind of exemplars in my mind you know, a few incarnations of James Bond, somebody might think, well, you know, James Bond, that's a weird choice for somebody going in to do manual therapy. But the thing that always impressed me about James Bond as I was growing up was James Bond was somebody who could show up in pretty much any situation and handle it, right? Handle the other people in it. He could be flexible, he could be adaptive, and he could always move towards his outcome. Kind of very NLP sort of flavored figure. And that had always inspired me. I know that these days, James Bond is seen as a unreconstructed bastion of toxic masculinity, but to a younger James, 
there was definitely um, some worthwhile qualities to model in James Bond. So I, I did this kind of modeling of James Bond. I drew on my inspiration, my ideas of James Bond, particularly the new Daniel Craig James Bond at the time. And I scripted this scene. Okay. Now I wasn't trying to be James Bond. I was recreating the version of myself. I was just drawing on some of that kind of vibe, some of that energy. Now, you might be listening to this and thinking, well, hang on a second, you didn't know how it was going to go. So what was the point of scripting the scene? Now, the point of scripting the scene is in order to script it, I had to really imagine the character, right? Imagine the character that I was going to be. And in order to really imagine the character that I was going to be, I had to immerse myself in it, right? So I was literally in this kind of weird trance-like state, immersing myself in the scene, feeling how it would feel for me to be that person speaking that way, moving that way, walking that way. Okay. So I had to really kind of embody it. Now, this is very similar to uh, an approach to acting often referred to as method acting. Okay. You just fully inhabit the character. You become the character from the inside out. Your whole phenomenology shifts to be that character, right? So I was going fully into the experience of being this character who was saying these lines. Now, it was highly, highly scripted, of course, and the other characters, I had to be guessing what they were going to say. I'd met Katrina already. I had a certain sense of what she might be like. But the other people, it was just pure guesswork. Now, I want to emphasize here, the point of doing this was not because I thought that I was going to recite my lines. It was to get into a way of being. Now, once I got into this way of being, I knew how to sort of stabilize myself in it. Or more specifically, I knew the kinds of thought and ideas that belonged to that way of being and those that were outside of it and might try and pull me out of it. This was a really useful thing. But I want to say something else before I move on with this particular story. During the creation of this version of myself, I remember saying to my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we were not married at that point, saying, do you know what? I wish I could just rename myself. I could just become this person a hundred percent and have a new name, right? I felt like I needed a new name because, um, my old name was anchored to a particular way of being. This is an NLP idea, anchoring. My old name was anchored to a particular way of being. And I wanted to break free of that anchor. So I remember saying at the time, I wish I could just change my name and become this person. Right. And I didn't do that at that point, but I did change my name later on. And I'll, I'll say something in a little bit as, as to why I did that later on when I did. Now, what happened is I went back the next week and I walked into this place and I could feel the beginnings of my, let's call it my anxiety state and my brain shut down. I could feel them beginning to come in and I could notice certain thoughts. You know, ways that I might talk myself down or thoughts that would stir fears and this sort of thing, wanting to come in. But it was very easy to recognize these and see them because they were so incongruent with this new state that I had created. Right? So it was very easy to push them away and just say, no, I'm staying in this state, right? Whether I, you know, win, lose or draw, whether I rise up or absolutely uh, get shot down in flames. I do not care. I am going in, right? You know, I'm thinking of Eminem now. You've only got one shot. So I went in all out for this. I am going to be this different person. I don't care if it's a complete failure. I have nothing to lose. That was really the, the place I was coming from. So I totally walked in as this different character, 
Um, I really took charge of the interactions and the dynamic. My non-verbals were really solid. I was grounded in myself. You know, I was in this role. Obviously, it went nothing like the script, but I just went in and I totally handled the situation like a boss. Within literally a few minutes, people were uh, talking there about how they could promote me in the, in the place and all of this and what sort of, I just totally nailed it. Now, here's the thing. Nobody was more surprised by this than me because there was a part of me watching this and the part of me that was watching this could see something that I'd never seen before. I could see other people responding to me in ways that I'd never really seen people responding to me, right? It really clicked in my head, my goodness, me, my being, how I show up, how I engage, how I communicate, all that I am bringing to this situation is massively creative in terms of other people's responses to me, right? I have power to influence others through how I show up and engage. And this was done, by the way, I want to make this really, really clear. A lot of people think of NLP, they think of influential communication and some of the influential communication models. I had not learned any of that stuff at this point. I was purely using modeling, if you like, or purely using Actually, what I was using was an approach in NLP called a new behavior generator. I often call it a new possibilities simulator because I think that's an honest, more honest sort of way of rendering it up. But basically, um, and this is inspired by one of the influences on NLP, by the way, people, uh, obviously, people recognize that NLP did not pop out of nothing in the 1970s, there were influences on the creators of NLP. And one of the influences was a philosopher in the 19th century called Weihanger, I think his name was, can't think of his first name, who wrote a book called The Philosophy of As If. Acting as if, not just acting as if, but going fully into the experience of as if. Okay, so this is using what Maxwell Maltz would call the theater of the imagination. I had used the theater of my imagination to shift my ground of being, to shift how I showed up, to shift how I engaged. This had a powerful influential effect. Not the language patterns, none of that stuff, which I absolutely love, but just simply shifting my ground of being, showing up and engaging in a different way. Now, this blew me away, right? This is the thing. I was kind of already into NLP. I'd been sold on it, or at least I'd been sold on the possibilities of it. But this was the first clear evidence that what was being offered here with this NLP material was indeed powerful. So moving forward in my life, I really got into NLP right from this point on. And I really started to, I, I learned all the language patterns, the language models, everything. I'm just like, right. I'm going to master this stuff and I'm going to use it to transform myself completely. And I did. Now, one of the things that I very much got into, I was doing a number of things at the time. So there were a number of areas that I was applying my NLP. One was, of course, the manual therapy. I've just talked about that. Another was I was a trainer of martial arts, right? So I became a better trainer of martial arts. Incidentally, if you're thinking, well, James, you know, you were taking leadership in that environment, teaching martial arts. How was that possible with your social anxiety? I'll let you into a little secret here. When I was teaching martial arts, I used to show up late for my own classes so that I didn't have to have any kind of um, small talky interactions with my students beforehand because my social anxiety would kick off. As soon as I was in teaching mode, I was kind of all right. 
you know, but I couldn't handle the social side of it. So, um, but I started to use it. Now I also began to be able to show up early and on time for my classes because I was developing a new set of capabilities with social interaction, right? And a new, more solid ground of being that I could come from in that respect. Uh, but I was also applying it to being a more effective martial arts teacher. And I also took up mentalism and magic. So I was performing as a sort of walk around close up mentalist and magician. And some people know of the street hypnosis stuff I, I done. I've got videos up on YouTube from years ago. I was doing that kind of stuff at the same time. So there were these areas of application where I was not just learning new skills of communication, but building a new ground of being, right? Creating a new self. And particularly in the realm of performance of magic and mentalism, I absolutely recreated myself, right? You could say I created a new character, but it was a new character from the inside out. And that character was James Tripp. Okay. So a lot of what shows up in me now in a variety of contexts is created, is created through uh, NLP. Now, some people go, well, does that mean you're fake, James? I don't know. You know, what are we anyway? I, these days, I don't believe that we are pure patterning. I think a lot of what we think of as our personality, as our character that we might think is fixed, is just patterning, and it's easy to repattern. I do think that deep down, there's a sort of essence of who we are, a sort of thumbprint of our soul, but that can be expressed into the world in a variety of different ways, in so many different ways, right? So a lot of what we're doing, I think this is what I would advocate in the way that I would teach neurolinguistics. Now, if we're recreating ourselves, it's not just like recreating something um, on a blank slate, right? It's bringing through these deeper essences that are, that are deep within us in ways that are functional and adaptive in the world able to bring about the kind of life we want to bring about, but are still honest and resonant with who we are deep down. Okay. So this is what I think NLP actually has the power to offer. A lot of people say, oh, well, it's just about being a big fake and manipulating people and all of this. I don't think it is, right? It's about better expressing your deepest essence in more functional ways in the world. So I recreated this self in a sense, or a new expression of myself, and I renamed this James Tripp. Right. So James Tripp was a magician, was a mentalist, was a performer, mostly close up, did some stage shows. And the reason that I took that name on board in a more professional uh, manner is when I first started teaching hypnosis without trance. Uh, if you go right back, by the way, if you find some really early stuff around hypnosis without trance, you'll see that is done under the name James Rolfe, which is my birth name, R-O-L-P-H. Okay. It means infamous wool, I believe in old Norse or something like that which is kind of cool, but, um, James Tripp was the guy who was doing the magic and the mentalism and this kind of thing. And I found that probably 60% of the people that were coming on my initial hypnosis without trance trainings were from the world of magic and mentalism. So knew me as James Tripp. It was confusing people. So I switched across to James Tripp as my professional name. Now, if you hear me in this podcast, if you were to meet me, uh, even in my family situation, I'm very different from how I used to be. And I'm probably the same in a great many ways as well. And a lot of that's James Tripp. So James Tripp has sort of fed back into James Rolfe. I don't know, you know, where one begins and where the other ends anymore. But so it's not hyperbolic to say that I wouldn't exist, at least as I am now. And as I flow forward in my life, if it wasn't for neurolinguistic programming, and I owe it so much, it has done so much for me 
It has empowered me in so many ways that, um, that I want to, uh, well, I want to say what I love about it here, but I'm also aware that I think it's got its downsides, right? <laughs> you know, after everything I've just said about what it's done for me, how much I love it, I really do think there are some issues with it that could do with hacking, changing or evolving, or it could do with growing, whatever. And I want to talk about some of those in here as well. I really think it's true. If you, if you ever meet somebody who teaches something, an art, craft, a skill, whatever, and they're not able to cast a critical eye across their own discipline, they're probably not a very nuanced thinker about it. They're just an evangelist. They're just caught in some sort of like reality tunnel that deletes anything that, that might, uh, you know, be ready for an upgrade, so to speak. They're not paying attention with a particularly refined eye, I would suggest. So that was a hell of an intro for the good, the bad, and the ugly of NLP. But with that intro passed, let's dive into it. All right. What's good about NLP? The first thing that I think NLP offers and I think it's one of the most powerful things, and I've already touched on this, it's the idea of modeling. Now, modeling is the origins of NLP. Now, by modeling here, if you don't know what, you, know, you don't know the terminology of NLP, you might be thinking of people walking up and down catwalks. That's not what modeling is about. Modeling, in NLP terms, is about paying attention to how somebody who does something really well does that thing, right, or paying attention to how they are and extrapolating the useful patterns from that so that you can kind of bring them into your own being. Okay, this is what modeling is. And there's a couple of ways you can do this. You can model just for yourself. So you draw those patterns out, you bring them into your own being, and then you test them. You see that they bring about the outcomes that you want. This is basic modeling. There's no coding of the model in this. Okay, so you can't then teach that model to other people. You might not have it laid out explicitly. You've just brought those patterns into yourself. You've explored with them. You've maybe made some adjustments and you see what kind of results you get. Are you getting results you like? If you are, good. If not, make some further adjustments. The other side is coding of the models. Now, a lot of the old NLP models, things like the meta model, the Milton model, this kind of thing, these are coded models. There are explicit instructions that you can then use to teach other people to use that model. Now, those are two separate things. And I want to make that really clear. So when I'm talking about modeling, I'm talking about the first thing. I'm talking about the ability to pay attention to other people's ways of doing and being, pick out the patterns and bring those patterns into yourself. I think this is an incredibly powerful thing. This is the thing that initially captured my imagination. It is the thing that I initially used to start repatterning myself. Okay. And it's also the origins of NLP itself. If you don't know of the origins of NLP, NLP started out with Richard Bandler, basically modeling Fritz Perls, although it wouldn't have been called modeling at the time. Richard Bandler is a pretty good natural mimic. And the story goes that he was given a job transcribing a load of video tape or video film or whatever. I think early videotapes, so it would have been chunky old stuff back in the early 70s, of Gestalt pioneer Fritz Perls, Gestalt therapy pioneer Fritz Perls. 
and that he watched so much of this that he ended up being able to do a really good Fritz Perls impersonation, but not just an impersonation of Fritz's voice or his mannerisms or anything like that, but an impersonation of Fritz's therapy, even though he didn't know the theoretical frameworks of that therapy. Also, there's another story that whilst Richard was behind some two-way glass in a gestalt training and was filming the training because he was working for science and behavior books at the time, some trainee gestalt therapist got stuck and Richard went out to the room and took over and totally got the shifts happening. And he still didn't know the theory of gestalt therapy. He just kind of copied these patterns. He mimicked these patterns. So this is how NLP started initially with Richard Bandler's modeling or copying, you could say, of Fritz Perls. Now, in order to copy, you need to be able to pay attention to pattern. This is a really major piece of NLP is being able to pay attention at the level of pattern. That's pattern in process, pattern in behavior, this kind of thing. It's a massive, massive thing in NLP, in real NLP. And I want to point out that this is something that is rarely taught to a particularly high level in modern NLP practitioner trainings, I believe. Pattern recognition, the ability to look at the world and pick patterns, a major foundational skill, and it's right there at the heart of modeling. This is huge. So I think this is a really, really good thing. It also helps, by the way, because you can pick pattern at a variety of different levels. You can pick pattern in behavior, but you can also pick pattern out in how people conceptualize, right? how they make sense of the world. And we're going to say a little bit more about this in a, a while. So when I'm coaching people, one of the major things that I'm doing is I'm paying attention to their patterns of sense making as they speak to me, because they're telling me about their life. They're telling me about their problems, this kind of thing. So I'm paying attention to their patterns of sense making. And I'm checking those out. I kind of like bring them into myself. Remember this idea of modeling, you take it, you try it on. And I check in through my own neurology, what kind of freedoms that creates, but what kind of restrictions it creates. And then I cross-reference that with what is the problem they're having? Where are they stuck? Where are they liberated, right? Where do they have choice? Where do they have no choice? And then I will start to use the more linguistic side of NLP, right? The more kind of hypnotic language side, this kind of thing to offer what I call new organizations of reality, a different fundamental model for them to operate from, whilst inviting them to sort of notice the difference either implicitly or ex explicitly in terms of uh, what it offers them, you know, with their being and their doing in the world, right? Are they in a better place, in a worse place? Do they have more resourcefulness, less resourcefulness, more empowerment, less empowerment? Okay, that's basically how I do change work. It's very based in NLP in a lot of ways. It's very based in modeling and pattern recognition and modeling out people's conceptual renderings. So modeling is a huge thing. I think it's amazingly powerful, amazingly powerful. It's such a profound skill, well worth developing. I strongly recommend it to people. Uh, the second thing on the good list is related to modeling. It is awareness right? Particularly acuity, what's called acuity and calibration. Okay. So having your senses switched up towards that, that you wish to pay attention to. Now, this was a huge game changer for me in that I spent a lot of time in my own head, caught up in my own thought loops. I wasn't really paying attention to other people. I was absolutely wrapped, lost in my own thoughts about what other people might be thinking of me. This is how I used to create anxiety for myself. Okay, being lost in my own self-hypnosis, so to speak, that was undermining me. 
So it was huge for me when I learned in NLP to shift my awareness to actually looking for patterns in other people and to not always be interpreting those patterns. Okay, so one of the things about awareness and acuity and calibration is in NLP, you learn to step back from mind reading or going down chains of inference about what things mean. Okay, so you keep an open mind about what you see might mean. You always keep an open mind so you can take a variety of different perspectives on it. You can explore with it rather than being had by it. So in NLP, we learn to pay attention to other people. We learn to pay attention to subtleties in their movement, in their physiology, their breathing, their skin tone, their eye accessing, how they hold their body, muscle tone, all sorts of things. There's so much data there. We learn to be able to track when people's states shift. Okay, we learn to be able to track where their attention is likely to be. All of this is extremely useful uh, when you are engaging in influential communication, which is 50% of what NLP is about, in my opinion. In my view, NLP is 50% about epistemology, i.e. sense-making and organization of reality, and 50% about running communication feedback loops, but that's a little aside there. But we want to be able to pay attention to other people, how they're responding to us in the communication loops. There's an idea in NLP, the meaning of the communication is the response that you get. Are you getting the kind of response that you want? Are you leading somebody in the direction you're looking to lead them in? Are you paying attention to when their state shifts and how their state shifts? Can you pay attention? This is what awareness, this is what acuity and calibration is about. I'll just say something about the distinction between acuity and calibration. Acuity is the refinement in what you're able to pay attention to. Okay, so somebody might look at a person and they can see a thousand and one different subtle shifts, you know, difference in like the, the amount of blood that's going to their lips or, or whatever, like really subtle things, differences, subtle differences in breathing patterns, these sorts of things, lots and lots of subtleties you can pay attention to, right? That's acuity. It's a bit like somebody who develops their wine palette. Instead of going, oh, this is a nice wine or this is a less nice wine, they can really go into the subtle distinctions in the flavor. That is what acuity is about, sensory acuity. By the way, I will say, with NLP, you want to be able to send acuity in, in two directions, right? Have acuity or awareness in two directions. One of them is to the world out there, okay? Other people, what's going on, patterns, how people are responding, what's changing. The other direction is you want to be able to have an awareness for self, right? It doesn't mean you're constantly self-aware, but you're able to observe your own processes, right? And, and subtle distinctions on what's coming up from within your own cognitive processing, your own interoception, this kind of thing. I often say people are by default very poor witnesses to their own processes. NLP helps you become a better witness, or good NLP, I think, should help you become a better witness to your own processes. You can learn more about yourself and find different choice points within your own cognitive flow. So that's acuity. Calibration is different. Okay, calibration really means adjustment of being able to make correlations and go, well, I'm seeing this and I know that this equates with this, right? I'll give you a really simple example of this that comes from the realm of doing professional change work. If I'm working with a client, they come in, they go into an unresourceful state. Okay. They might not be going into the problem state, but they're going into an unresourceful state about their problem. And that state does not contain the solution because if it did, they'd have already solved the problem. 
right? So that unresourceful state is getting them stuck in one way of seeing things that does not contain a solution, does not contain a way out. I want to know what that looks like, right? This is calibration, matching up the patterns and physiology that I see with the unresourceful state. I want to know what that looks like because part of my job is to keep them out of that unresourceful state. Okay, so it's really important that I can recognize when it comes up so that I can interrupt it or shift them away. On the flip side, it might be that I see them accessing a very resourceful state. Okay, and I know it's a resourceful state because the context they're talking about, um, you know, it might be a context in their life where they have a lot of options, a lot of choices. They really feel they're in the driving seat. And I get a sense of what that looks like. And I know that I can use that as a resource. So I know if I want to re-evoke that state at any point, I've got to know I'm being successful in re-evoking it through my communication, through sensory acuity. But I need to have made those calibrations. Okay, so what calibration is, is it's checking in. Does this match with this? What does this match with? It's the opposite of what is sometimes called mind reading or claiming to know. Okay, this is the bad habit of assuming that you know what's going on in somebody's mind based on what you see. Oh, I can tell they're in a bad mood because of X, Y, and Z. Or I can tell they're annoyed with me because of, you know, whatever. So mind reading is a poor quality calibration. It's an assumption rather than a calibration. So NLP encourages people to step out of that. Again, this was really, really good for me, for myself in transcending a lot of my anxiety is because a lot of my anxiety was driven by mind reads. I wasn't even paying attention to the patterns. I was running down the chain of inferences and coming up with a conclusion that somebody was thinking ill of me or I was making a fool of myself or they were going to think I was stupid or something like that. All of which were absolutely terrible things to be feared uh, above everything else. Uh, not. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to attitude. Attitude, what's good about NLP? Certain attitude. Richard Bandler has described NLP as an attitude and a methodology that leaves behind it a trail of techniques. Okay, I'll probably come back and touch on this from a different perspective later on, but an attitude and a methodology that leaves behind it a trail of techniques. Now, that attitude at its most basic level is actually one of curiosity. You could say the attitude is curiosity, but it's more than that. There's an overall attitude that gets shaped in NLP, and that attitude actually gets shaped by the NLP presuppositions, the foundational assumptions, uh, if they are taught well and taught properly, or if they are explored well and explored properly. Now, the presuppositions, they're a collection of, I would say, orientations. Um, things like the meaning of the communication is the response that you get. The element within the system with the greatest degree of flexibility becomes the governing element within the system. People are not their behaviors. Every behavior has a positive intention. People make the best choices they can according to their understanding of the situation. The map is not the territory. There's no failure, only feedback. Right? Each one of these is a pithy phrase, but that pithy phrase is the tip of an iceberg. And when you get into the iceberg, when you really start to embody, when you start to go into the shape of consciousness that sits in the iceberg below that tip, you start to build this NLP attitude. 
Now, this NLP attitude is very, very powerful because it puts you at cause in the world. It puts you in a place where you're paying attention. It puts you in a place where you are, you are constantly sorting for choices and options. You're able to be dynamic. You're able to move forward. You're able to be adaptive. You're able to be flexible. Right? These are all embodied things. They embody this attitude. Okay, the methodology that Banda talks about when he says it's an attitude and a methodology, the methodology is one of modeling and creation, right? So Richard Bandler sort of attempted to move on from NLP in some ways, and he started running trainings called Design Human Engineering. And this is back in the 80s. And what Richard was wanting to do there was say, look, we don't have to be bound by just looking for excellence in others and modeling it. We can engage our own creativity, right? In, in coming to things and in engineering ways of being, ways of doing afresh, creating new things. So cutting new ground. Now, the thing is with this design human engineering thing, it didn't take off because everybody wanted NLP, right? So I think Richard just folded it back into his teaching of NLP. I don't know if he teaches design human engineering anymore. I'm not a fan, by the way, of that metaphor engineering, but we'll come back to that later on. So. The attitude and the methodology, the methodology is one of, of going, what's new? Let's try new things on, whether we've got them through modeling or whether we've just kind of invented them ourselves. Let's try them on and see how they work. See what kind of results that we get. And we always pay attention to feedback because we always want to know that what the thing that we're doing is creating is in alignment with our outcomes. Okay. And that's another major thing, major good thing about NLP, I'll say on the good list is developing the real outcome focus and a real proactivity towards creating solutions and finding ways through. Okay, this is all part of the attitude of NLP. Now, next up on my good things list about NLP, things that I've found immensely valuable are the language models of NLP. Now, initially, we've got the first two language models, the meta model and the Milton model. Both of these I value highly. I used to value the Milton model more than the meta model, but I've come to see the meta model in a deeper, richer way over the last decade or so. And I really love the meta model. I think it's a really, really powerful toolkit when understood in, uh, in the quote unquote right way. So these language models are really, really good. They were modeled by Bandler and Grinder really initially. I just said something about the Bandler-Grinder connection and modeling. So I mentioned that Richard Bandler had modeled Fritz Perls and wasn't thinking about it in terms of modeling. He just copied Fritz Perls. Became very, very good at doing gestalt therapy. So he started to run these gestalt therapy groups at the University of Santa Cruz. Very interesting guy, Richard Bandler. Not qualified at all. Did not let that hold him back. Okay, so he strode forward and just created what he wanted in terms of his outcome. So he started running these Gestalt groups and he had a partner in this, another very good Gestalt therapist guy called Frank Pusilic, who was, I think, formerly Gestalt trained. So he'd come to Gestalt from a different route from Richard, but they influenced each other greatly and were both really, really good at creating shifts, really, really next level at it. And Grinder was not part of the picture at this point, John Grinder. John Grinder was a linguistics professor. He was a bit older than Richard Bandler, similar age to Frank Huslick, I think. Just happened to be there at the University of Santa Cruz. And Richard met him in another capacity at the university. Okay, that was quite a progressive university. So they 
they used to have these groups where faculty and students would get together and there would be no hierarchy in them to think about various problems on the campus. And Richard and John, as I understand it, got on quite well. And Richard became curious and thought, this guy, I think he can help us make sense of what we're doing. So he knew that John was a linguistics professor, particularly with an interest in transformational grammar from Chomsky's work, and that perhaps he could take these linguistic structures and make sense of what they were doing. So that's what happened. And this is how the first model of NLP got codified. And I think before it did, there was some additional modeling of Virginia Satir that took place, again, through Richard's connection with science and behavior books. So the meta model, the first language model, was a distillation of a bunch of patterns of communication from Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir with a couple of extra bits brought in from transformational grammar, okay, that were tried out in the new context. So basically, it's from a model of highly effective change agents and how they did it. And I think, you know, as the story goes, Bander and Grinder, Pusilik, by the way, he's very much in the mix, but he's like, I think had a much more relaxed approach to things and wasn't so much on the book writing end of things. So he ended up kind of being in the shadows, but was very much a, a key figure in the early days of NLP. And by the way, is somebody I've done a small amount of training with myself. And I was very, very impressed by a lot of what Frank Puslik did. Really, really good stuff. I would love to train more with Frank Puslik. Um, so that first language model, the meta model, it's really about drilling down and it's about getting into people's sense-making and epistemology, right? People construct their reality. They don't know they're doing it, but they construct their reality. They make sense of the world. And then they mistake the sense they make of the world for the world itself. And of course it's not. And if the sense they make of the world is uh, not giving them the choices that they would like to have in life, then that sense needs to change. But it's not always easy to change somebody's sense of the world because they think it is the world itself right? So, you know, if somebody really believes something is true, they have a cherished truth, as I often call it, they're not going to let go of that easily. Why would they? They would be making a fool of themselves because they think they've got hold of the world as it is. So a lot of that early model, the meta model, gives you a set of tools or distinctions or filters. I think that's the best way of looking at it to see how somebody is making sense. And it gives you some choices in how to loosen the sense that they've made. Okay. It also helps them to see, if used appropriately, their own sense-making processes. Because often when we're caught up in a bit of sense we've made, we can't see that it doesn't make sense. And from the outside, if we're able to go meta to it, we can see actually that doesn't add up. Right. By the way there, I just said go meta to it. Back in the 70s, NLP wasn't called NLP. It was referred to loosely as meta. And meta means being able to go above and look and see what something is about. Now, each and every one of us, we get caught in our rendering of reality in the moment, but we do not get to see how we rendered reality, right? We look at the world through the sense we're making. We don't get to look at the sense we're making. So the meta model, meta model, helps to bring people outside of their own sense-making so they can look at it and see for themselves the implications of it and where that's serving them and where that's not. It is a very powerful way to help people move their minds when, when deployed with the right kind of rapport, the right kind of considerations. Otherwise, if it's employed in a very clunky way, which a lot of people do, 
people usually clam up immediately because they feel like their map of the world is being attacked, right? They feel like their sense-making is being attacked when the meta model is used badly, right? So something of an answer using it. As soon as somebody feels they're attacked, they close up, they don't look at their sense-making, they dig down into it, right? And they just push back. So it can be very clunkily deployed. This is one of the problems with modeling, codifying, and then learning from the codification rather than just modeling directly. So what would have got lost as the book, The Structure of Magic was written, which was about the meta model, what would have got lost is all the other implicit stuff that didn't come out in the explicit coding of the model that would have been there in Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir's work. Okay, so that's the first language model. The second language model that Banner and Grinder, and this is more Banner and Grinder, I'm not sure that Puselik was so much involved in this one, uh, at least not nearly so strongly, was the modeling of Milton H. Erickson, the renowned, legendary hypnotherapist and psychiatrist. Banner and Grinder were introduced to Erickson via a guy called Gregory Bateson, who was a mentor for them at the time. Gregory Bateson was very impressed by what they'd done with the structure of magic and said, all right, that's really great. Now you've got to meet this guy. And I think you know, the story goes that Banner and Grinder really thought they had this you know, here's a model of all great therapy with the meta model. This is what all great therapy is doing. Then they saw Erickson and he was doing completely the opposite. He had the whole thing on the inverse. So the meta model helps you get forensic about people's sense-making. The Milton model helps you to weave new sense that people get lost in. Okay, so the, the meta model helps people get up above their thinking. The Milton model pulls people into getting lost in new thinking, new ideas, new renderings of reality. One of them is forensic and precision-based and breaks things up. The other one pulls things into holes, into gestalt. The meta model helps you get up above your stuff. The Milton model pulls you back into new stuff. And I always think this is interesting if you look at the old kind of formula of alchemy, right? If you look at the old science of alchemy, some people say it was about turning base metal into gold, that transformation. Other people say, no, it was about the transformation of the soul, of the spirit, of the being. More, much more personal thing. But there's this old equation of solve a coagula. Right? That means you deconstruct, you take apart, and then you reform, you put back together. If you've got the meta model and you've got the Milton model, you've got solve a coagula. Right? So they work beautifully together when you understand how both work and you can really you know, bring them into your own personal alchemy or working with others in helping them make transformations. A really, really good pairing. So I love those language models. Initially, by the way, I was mainly into the Milton model, the, the coagula, right? So I would use this a lot when I was doing manual therapy. I would use it to support the work that I was doing there. I would use it when I was teaching martial arts. I would use it massively in doing magic and mentalism, right? I'll give you a really simple example. If you show someone a card trick, you could think, well, the card trick itself needs to be fundamentally impressive. But people can react in different ways to the same card trick. Someone could go, oh, yeah, that's cool. And somebody else could be screaming and going, that's incredible. Right? So if you want to have the highest impact possible from a card trick, well, you can shape the experience of the reveal on the card trick for maximum effect. This is where Milton model starts to come in. Right? So you're doing a magic trick, but you're also shaping how somebody perceives it, shaping the state they go into using your Ericksonian language, so to speak. So the language models, absolutely phenomenal. Last thing I'm going to say that I think is really good about NLP 
is the idea of adaptiveness. This is what I always call it. In NLP, you will not hear anybody use the term adaptiveness, probably. You will hear people talk about behavioral flexibility. And one of the tenets of NLP, the ones I said shape the attitude of NLP, is the element within the system with the greatest degree of flexibility becomes the governing element within the system. And this is taken from cybernetics. It's called the law of requisite variety. So this is another term you'll hear, requisite variety. That means you have to have enough variety in your behavior and re your responses to bring about the outcome you want in the conditions that are occurring, right? Uh, and sometimes those conditions can get more and more unpredictable. Life is pretty unpredictable, particularly modern life, right? So requisite variety means increasing your own variety of being, doing, responding, this kind of thing. So as you're able to shift as you need to, to bring about your outcomes. Now, I call this adaptiveness, generally. This is how I refer to it. It's being able to adapt in the moment, right? It's being able to create with whatever comes up towards your outcome. This is of immense value in life. Absolutely immense value. And I believe, sincerely, it is becoming literally year on year at the moment of even more importance even greater importance. I did a thing somewhere a little while ago, making the case that NLP is more important now than ever, even though it's sort of really out of fashion. It's really gone out of fashion. NLP has a true NLP, adaptive NLP. This is more important now than ever as the world gets more and more unpredictable, more and more complex. We need adaptiveness, personal adaptiveness more than ever. So this is my last point on the good list. I'm sure there are plenty of other things I could dig down, I could chunk down, I could find many, many more good things. But those are the things that I think are really, really spectacular about NLP and the things that I treasure the most. So, the bad. Okay, that was the good. Now we're going to get to the bad. I'm going to begin with the problem of inorganic metaphors. Okay, this is the place that I'm going to begin certain sorts of metaphors. Now, I've already said, and I've talked about this elsewhere on Agents of Everything, the way we make sense of things shapes our consciousness, shapes our experience of them, and it shapes our options and choices. That means that NLP, the way things are talked about in NLP, shapes consciousness a certain way, right? And the way it shapes consciousness is really great in some ways and less great in others. Now, given that we have an interest in adaptiveness, it's kind of odd to me that there was a bias, particularly in the late 70s, when it stopped being called meta and started being referred to as neuro-linguistic programming. We've got a very different sort of title, a very different metaphor there. We have an inorganic metaphor, a computer metaphor, a precision metaphor, a high level of control there in programming, right? You know, if you get the programming right, everything is very, very predictable garbage in, garbage out. It's all down to the programming. Now, there's a kind of, I've run this little bit of business before, but I'm going to run it for you right now. Many, many years ago, I was in uh, a band, the very first band that I was in. In fact, we'd never played a gig, but we've been rehearsing for this Battle of the Bands competition. This is in about 1991. It was in September, 1991. And we're a four-piece band. It was myself on guitar and vocals, my friend Philip. He was on bass. A guy called Kevin Mansell was on the other guitar. A guy called Rob Tofield was on the drums. And we rehearsed up this set for this Battle of the Bands. We were really excited to be doing it. 
And then in the two weeks running up to the Battle of the Bands, two things happened. Number one, Kevin, who had a girlfriend from Glasgow, said, oh, um, bit last minute, sorry, but I'm moving to Glasgow. It's like, when? He said, like, next week. And like, but we got the gig at the end of next week. He's like, yeah, sorry, I'm not going to be here. Ah, we lost our guitarist. That's a shame. Then our drummer turned around and he said, I've got offered a position in this other band. They were called Head Happy. And they were kind of a bigger, well, they were an existing band. So, of course, they were a bigger band than us. Um, he said, I'm, I'm off. I'm leaving. I said, you're going to do the Battle of the Bands? He's like, no. Off. He's gone. So, suddenly, it's me and Philip. That's it. We've got no band, but we're booked in for the Battle of the Bands. And we really had our hearts set on doing this. This was the biggest thing on our horizon. So, we needed to fix the problem. We need to get a new guitarist, and we needed to get a new drummer. Now, we actually got two new guitarists. We got one, he didn't work out, and then we got another one. And in the week running up to the Battle of the Bands, the guy who was the new guitarist, James, we never thought he'd want to be in the band because he was into really different music, but he loved it and he stayed with the band as a full-time member for the duration of our existence. But we still had this drummer problem. Drummers uh, were always the hardest member of the band to find because drum kits are big, they're clunky, nobody wants to haul a drum kit around so everybody chose other instruments. So drummers were hard to get. There was no way we were going to get a drummer before the gig. So we scratched together a bunch of money and we bought a drum machine. And I programmed that drum machine up in the week before and I used the beats that our old drummer had come up with as inspiration. He complained that we'd stolen his beats at some point afterwards. I don't know if he was really serious about that. We had this drum machine. Um, do you know what? We stuck with the drum machine. Once we had the drum machine, we carried on as a band with two guitarists, vocalist, bass player, and a drum machine. Now, that meant that as we played, as we worked our way up through the local music scene, we kept hearing the same joke over and over again. Everybody thought this was a great joke. And the joke runs thus. What's the difference between a drummer and a drum machine? Punchline is, you only have to punch the information into a drummer once. All right. Now, you know, back in the 90s, drummers were always getting stick. There were always jokes about drummers. Now, the drummer joke was, what do you get if you cross a drummer with a real musician, a bass player? So there's a way to have a go at the bass player and the drummer at the same time. But this drum machine joke, you know, you only have to punch the information into a drum machine once. I've often said that whoever came up with that joke, understood something about human beings that got missed in the naming of neurolinguistic programming, right? Because programming implies you only have to punch in the code once. That is not how human beings work. It is not how human beings learn. It is not how human beings grow. It is not how human beings adapt. Because human beings are organic. Right? They're learning systems. They are alive. They are not dead machines, lifeless machines. They're to be controlled. So I think this is a really unhelpful metaphor. You know, the interesting thing is, and people can see this now more than ever. I used to say this a few years ago, and this has changed now because of the rise of the kind of AI that we've got now. I used to say, you know, it's funny how in personal development, so many people are trying to make themselves like machines, productivity machines, results machines, outcomes machines. Whereas 
in the world of machine learning, in the world of artificial intelligence, they're doing the best to try and make the machines like humans. Isn't that a funny world where humans are trying to become like machines and people are trying to make the machines like humans? What a crazy world. Well, why are they trying to make machines like humans? What is everything that's glorious about being human, right? Having a real organic brain, a real mind, okay, an embodied mind. What is so great about that? Um, we don't want to destroy that, I think, with these, these programming metaphors. Now, you might say, well, yeah, okay, so they're a bit cold. But I would also say they lead us to relate to ourselves and others in ways that are less effective than when we acknowledge the real organic nature of human beings, of mind, of life, and all of this kind of thing. So I think those inorganic metaphors are a problem. Now, they don't just stop with neurolinguistic programming. You go back, old school NLP, particularly to the kind of Bandler side of things, we're going to hear a lot about strategy, elicitation, and installation. Again, very uh, left hemisphere, very kind of engineering, you know, kind of base language, right? Now, the problem with this stuff is it goes beyond the metaphor here. I think actually the idea of strategy elicitation, as it's taught in NLP Volume 1, which I think was published in 1980, the first book to bear the name neurolinguistic programming, I don't think it's a very good idea. I don't think it works. I um, approached NLP from the perspective of, I want to know how all of this stuff works. I want to get good at doing it. I really, really worked a lot with a lot of things. Strategy, elicitation, installation. I could never get to be much of a runner. Let me tell you what I mean by this. There's an approach taught in NLP that I was taught, and I used to teach because I was an NLP trainer, right? I was teaching it, and I didn't really believe in it, so to speak. But it's this idea that you can map a cognitive strategy out of somebody by listening to their rep system predicates, watching their eye-accessing cues, and you can come out with this kind of syntax of thought. So, and it's going to be like, you have the symbols there with visual, auditory, digital, kinesthetic, whatever. You get a sequence that you elicit from somebody as, as you watch it. And there's this sort of idea that you can then put that into somebody, right? Or install it, this installation through some means. Now, I was always really dubious about this. And I was really dubious, number one, because it seemed to be, I'm not saying there was no utility in going through the motions with this, because often you could get some interesting changes and things happening. But something didn't sit right with it for me. So I never took it overly seriously. One of the things that seemed immediately obvious to me is that minds work in rich, multi-level ways. So you never have one thing happening after another. There's a load of stuff going on at the same time. The other thing that struck me is that the way of rendering things down was inherently digital. This, then this, then this. And I'm like, minds are analog. So this just doesn't fit. This seems like a really poor way of mapping somebody's mind flow. Okay. So it never really sat with me. Not to say there isn't some utility in pretending it's real and sort of going along with it sometimes, because you can get some interesting things happening, but it never really sat. You know, the funny thing is I actually read relatively recently uh, in the book, The Origins of NLP, which is edited by John Grinder and Frank Puslick. I read this bit where John Grinder says, Oh yeah, that was rubbish. It was an idea that had captured his imagination because he was a syntactician. 
And he thought, wouldn't it be great if we could get a syntax of cognition, like we can have syntax in language. And then he points out in that, that, you know, it doesn't work for the exact the same reasons that I've just said, because language, you can only say one word at a time, but thought, you can think several thoughts in several different channels at the same time, right? And they flow into each other in a way that cannot be so neatly partitioned out as language can, right? So language is fundamentally linear. Thought, mind is fundamentally multi, multi-layered, right? So that doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of wasted energy and effort in trying to make it work, in my opinion. Now that said, I think the loose concept of cognitive strategies can be useful, right? And it can be useful to be curious about what somebody might be doing in their mind. But that rigid one way of mapping that I think is less useful beyond being some kind of curiosity or development exercise or whatever, right? Now, I want to say something about this other point, this other idea of installation. There's a lot in this, right? Now, I remember many, many years ago, I ran a NLP practitioner training and there was this guy who attended, who'd been on a different NLP practitioner training. And when I used to run NLP practitioner trainings, I used to really emphasize Milton model language, right? I used to use it a lot in quite an overt, almost caricatured way so that people could hear it and they could pick it up. And this guy was very, very impressed by my use of Ericksonian language because he'd already done a practitioner training and he didn't think that he was very good with it. He said to me, he said, how come you're so good with your conversational hypnosis stuff? I said, well, I practiced a lot. And because I've got some NLP skill, I could notice a shift in state that did look like it fitted well with understanding. It looked a lot more like confusion. That was my guess. So I said to him, I checked my intuition. I didn't just assume I was right. I said, you know, you look kind of confused by that answer. And he said, well, yeah. I said, how come? He said, well, on the training I did before, they told us we didn't need to think about it consciously because it was all being installed, right? Now, it's this idea, this metaphor again of installation, like everything can be installed, like in the matrix, you know, you get that download, I know Kung Fu. Now, this is not, once again, how we as human beings work. We do not receive downloads or installations or anything like that. We learn organically in a variety of different ways. Now, some learning can be effortless and unconscious, and some learning requires a certain amount of practice and repetition and drilling. It's different kinds of things. Now, if we are to just stick with that metaphor for a bit, I don't think you can install skills unconsciously in people by talking to them. And language use is a skill, right? You have to practice that going to practice the Milton model, you have to practice the Milton model. It cannot be installed unconsciously. It is a skill. What can be quote unquote installed in somebody is attitude, right? And even then I would say it's not being installed. It's being evoked. It's being vivified. See, these are different metaphors. They shape the relationship differently. People who go on Richard Bandler trainings. Now, Richard goes up, he does his thing at the front of the room. 
often richer band of trained practitioners, I would say they're not usually highly skilled when they come off a richer band of training, but they usually have a fantastic attitude, right? They have a really flexible, really adaptive attitude. They're filled with curiosity, with wonder, with a sense of possibility, right? But they haven't been drilled heavily in the skills because that's, that, that's Bandler's thing, right? That's, that's what he does brilliantly. Okay, so it's not knocking Bandler. He's doing what he does brilliantly and uh, not doing the rest necessarily. And like, you know, that's absolutely fine. I think it might be worth having some other trainers on the thing that are willing to take people through the skills drilling. It's a different conversation. Okay, so I think that these inorganic metaphors are unuseful. Now, there's another place where this sort of inorganic engineering computer metaphors thing comes in, and it's in the idea of state control. Now, not all NLP trainers will talk about state control. Some will talk about state management, and I think that's a better metaphor. But there's an idea that comes into NLP a lot, and I think this probably started to emerge much more in the 80s, and I'll get to this when I get to the ugly section of this. State control, the idea that we can control our state or even that we should be able to control our state. I have pointed this out before. If we could control our state absolutely, we would probably die reasonably quickly. We are not meant to be in control of our state. Our state is not meant to operate separately from the unfolding of the world around us to be 100% under our control. We would probably make bad decisions about state and uh, it would be bad for survival, all right? So the relationship between state and other variables in the system of your life, the psychosocial system that you are a part of, cannot be separated and state cannot be controlled independent of that, all right? Now, does that mean that state management isn't a useful thing? No, it doesn't mean that at all, right? I think there is a, a definite value in recognizing how your states come about and understanding how you might be able to influence that and what choices you have in influencing your state or your ground of being, as I often prefer to put it. This is a different thing. There's a big difference between control and influence. I think too many people end up in NLP thinking they're going to have control over things that are uncontrollable, over the dynamics of complex systems. That includes the dynamics of their own mind, the dynamics of the social situations they find themselves in. We do not get to have control. We do get to up our influence, right? This is where the game is at. Control is an illusion. Choice and influence are the places of leverage, okay? So I think this state control thing is unuseful. It leaves people trying to play the sucker's game of controlling their state. All the time they're looking at their state, trying to control their state, they're probably not paying attention to other useful variables where they could have uh, very high levels of influence. So I think there's a problem with that. The last thing I'm going to say on the bad list is, this could almost belong in the ugly list, is the degradation of NLP into a pile of processes, right? A, an endless, infinite pile of rigid, inflexible procedures, let's say. Let's not even say processes. I said before that Bandler's definition of NLP is an attitude and a methodology that leaves behind it a trail of techniques. So many people will go on an NLP training, an NLP practitioner training, and all they really get taught 
right? They do a little bit of rapport, a little bit of sensory acuity. I mean, a really tiny amount. And then they just do procedure after procedure after procedure, right? Visual squash, swish pattern, change personal history, six-step reframes, timeline patterns, whatever. They're just step-by-step processes, right? Fast phobia cure, new behavior generator, whatever. Step one, step two, step three, step four. Rigid, linear procedures. This is not NLP. This is not NLP. I remember that I did some training with John Grinder back in 2009, and he addressed this. He said, if you learn any of these procedures, if I see you in a year's time and you're still using them, I failed in teaching you NLP. Now, the reason John Grinder would have been saying that is because he would have seen it over and over again. People mistaking this collection of step-by-step procedures as being NLP. They are not. They are at best the products of NLP, the trail of techniques. Okay, an attitude and a methodology that leaves behind it a trail of techniques. They are not NLP. But I would say even more than that, they are not even the real techniques, right? I think they have value. They have value to be learned from rather than learned, right? So if you take something like a squash pattern in NLP, the real value of it is not here's a pattern that you can do, a process you can do. I've called it a pattern. I hate the fact people call it patterns. They're procedures. Step one, step two, step three, step four, right? You follow the procedure. It gives people an opportunity to move their mind in a variety of different ways that fit with certain NLP principles. You want to know what principles they fit with, right? It's a training device. That's what those things are. They're not meant to be anything more than a training device. But people start thinking that they're supposed to be some kind of magic technique rather than a training device. They are there to be learnt from, not learnt and applied over and over and over. Right? And of course, when people do learn them and apply them over and over and over, they've lost the spirit of NLP. There's no adaptiveness in that. There's no creativity. They're not even paying attention or calibrating shifts properly because they are responding to the next step in the procedure rather than what's happening with the person they're communicating with or with themselves. So they end up being fundamentally anti-NLP only because they're misunderstood. If they're used for what they're intended to be used for, to be learned from, it's all well and good. But I think that's really important that it's there in the framing when NLP is being taught. All right, that's the last I'm going to say around the bad. This is already a longer podcast than I intended. If you're still here, well, thank you for sticking with me on this. And we're going to get into the ugly. So NLP started out in the 1970s with the modeling of some phenomenal agents of personal change, right? Framed largely as therapists at the time. And if you take a look at the early NLP material, stuff like the structure of magic and the patterns of Milton Erickson, these books, you'll find that they're all about influencing people, yes, but influencing people to expand their map of the world, right? And therefore, their options and their choices. It's all about the expansion of options and choices. It's a very, very generative project. But then something happened as NLP shifted into the 1980s, or the 1980s arrived and NLP moved along with it. Now, the 80s is a kind of interesting decade, isn't it? There's a lot of shift in the way um, governments were looking at economics, particularly in the UK and the US. 
uh, Reaganomics and Thatcherism and these kind of things, restructuring of the banking sector and the rise of what were called at the time yuppies, young, upwardly mobile persons. It became the era of business, right? Everything was about making stuff happen. It was about business. All other values seemed to drop away other than progressing in business, making money, profit. You know, Margaret Thatcher said at the beginning of the 80s, she said, there's no such thing as society, only individuals and families, right? So it all became this very kind of individualistic, getting ahead, almost like this lionization of a dog-eat-dog world. I'm not, by the way, passing a judgment on that. I am observing that as a cultural shift, not passing a judgment on it in terms of how wholesome it is, how healthy it is, or anything like that. I'm just saying there's a cultural shift there. And NLP kind of got pulled along with that cultural shift. So what you suddenly get in 1980s training is a much bigger increase in the idea of NLP as being about influencing, and particularly in this kind of zero-sum game way. Now, what I mean by zero-sum game is like any kind of influence or manipulation, psychological manipulation, that gets somebody else to alter their behavior, but for your benefit, right? Not for their benefit, but for your benefit. Now, people who are trying to keep some ecology in the system, they go, yeah, but it's win-win. I might be selling this product, but you know, it's a really great product. So it's definitely worth them buying it. So it's a win-win. They get the great product. I get the money. All right. But in the end, you know, the salesman wants to get their commission. I'm not knocking this, by the way. I want to really make this clear. This is not a passing of judgment. It is an observation about a shift in culture, which pulled NLP in a different direction. So NLP goes from being, yes, about influence, but it's about influencing people to open up their possibilities, open up their options, open up their choices. It's fundamentally generative. Then in the 80s, it starts to steer towards steering people in useful directions for the influencer, right? Now, I'll put this in the ugly section, not because I want to pass a judgment on that, right? But it's ended up being a thing that stigmatized NLP, right? It's, it's ended up shaping NLP as being only really a thing that's about manipulation. I remember years ago when I was doing Toastmasters, I told somebody who was reasonably new to the Toastmasters group that I was like an NLP trainer and they looked horrified. And I said to them, I said, you, you know, that was an interesting reaction. What is it about NLP? He said, I think that stuff's disgusting. He said, it's just manipulating people for your own ends, right? Which was an interesting response. And I said to him, I said, I can see why you would look at it that way. I really honestly can. Though I am curious, by the way, this is pacing, it's NLP. I said, but I am curious. I said, how come you're here at Toastmasters? And the guy said, well, I want to be a better public speaker. I said, how come? He said, well, you know, I, I uh, have a lot that I need to communicate at work and I want to have a, a higher degree of impact. I want to be able to kind of get across what it is that I'm looking to get across better. I said, so you want to like be able to influence people? And he's like, yeah. I said, so what's the difference? in your mind then, I'm kind of curious about influence versus manipulation. Because I wanted to bring him to this place of accepting that we're always influencing each other. It's one of the tenets of NLP. You cannot not influence. You will influence others. Whether you're intending to or not, you will influence others. Right? So NLP says, if you're going to do it, be aware of how you're doing it and perhaps take a little bit of charge of that. Get a little bit of intentionality around it, a little bit more skill around it. 
right? Then you can take a greater responsibility for your influencing, which is going to be happening anyway. Okay. But what this guy got caught up in is this idea that it was about manipulating people uh, in a zero sum game. They lose, you win, right? You get them to do what you want. You get them to park their cash. You get them to, uh, to whatever. And then of course, the other side of it, where this sort of took over as well, is it became a huge thing. There was a guy called Ross Jeffries, who I've met. He's a friend of a friend, actually, who took a lot of that NLP stuff and he applied it to his failed love life. The guy was a guy that was not, uh, not getting far on, on his dates and this kind of thing. And he learned this NLP stuff and he learned that he could use it to be a better seducer. Right. Uh, so he called his system, his application of NLP speed seduction. And again, like a lot of people go, well, that's a pretty unwholesome thing, isn't it? Because you're going out, you're just looking to get laid and you're becoming a better seducer in order to meet your own sexual gratifications and all of this. Now, other people would go, no, 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 this is just like guys learning to, uh, you know, improve their ability to relate. There are different ways of looking at it. Right. I know, as I say, um, I've met Ross Jeffries, I actually went on one of his seminars because a friend of mine introduced me and he gave me a free invite to go on a seminar. I said to my wife, I said, I'm going on this seminar. She looked at the marketing and she was outraged. She said, this is awful stuff. Why are you going? I'm, so, I'm curious about what the guy's doing. I'm going there to see what he's like and all of this kind of thing, um, which she understood, but she was not impressed by the framing of his marketing to her. It was sleazy. That was the word that she used, right? So this is something that I'm talking about the ugly here. I'm talking about these associations. I'm not saying, by the way, NLP was any of these things or Ross Jeffries was any of these things. I'm not making that statement. I'm talking about the associations that started to get made in the 80s and 90s, right? The NLP was some kind of mind control manipulation thing, some kind of sinister technology for making people do what you want, right? And not only did it get that reputation, it didn't get that reputation for no reason. It got that reputation because people were selling it that way, right? Either at the speed seduction end of things or in the business applications end, which was often tilted towards being able to get people to make the decisions that you wanted them to make, right? So it seemed like it was sort of manipulative, coercive stuff like this. So that's one of the ugly things. And I think what it's done is it's taken NLP away from its roots, which was about generativity. It was about empowering people. It was about liberating people, liberating people, not controlling people. So for me, the side of NLP that I love, of course, we're influencing, but for me, I'm always coming from the place. I mean, you'll have heard me talk about it on agents of everything before I value personal sovereignty very, very highly. Right. Not just my personal sovereignty, but the personal sovereignty of everybody. Right. I value people, uh, you know, maybe I'm kind of like an old school liberal or whatever, but I value people's freedom, their freedom to choose, right. Their freedom to live the life that they want to live, to see the world the way they want to see it. I'm aware within that we live together. So there's some compromise in the mix, but generally I have that bias towards liberation and freedom. So I don't like the side of NLP that's about making people do things. It's about taking away their choices and railroading them. I don't like that. It doesn't sit with my value set. So for that reason, I feel much more drawn to that old school generative NLP, right? And I think the world has now shifted on in a great many ways. We've moved on from that in spiral dynamics terms, that kind of orange V meme 
sort of approach of the 1980s of like express self now towards future outcomes, you know, create the outcomes that you want strategic and tactically moving towards those future outcomes. You know, we're moving towards a world where people are considering other things, different values are coming through about quality of human life, how we live together, how we create together. And I happen to believe that we have entered an era where it is more important for us to be able to cohere and co-create together good solutions for living, good solutions for the future, for everyone to be able to participate generatively in the unfolding of human life. And I think NLP, neurolinguistics, adaptive meta has a phenomenal amount to offer this. And I think one of the things that would really serve it is being able to shake off that old stigma of the 80s and 90s that it's about sort of zero-sum game manipulations rather than about co-creations and generative engagement. So that, again, I'm going to put in the ugly list. Another thing in the ugly list is ossification. Okay, ossification. So when something ossifies, it turns to bone. Like if a tendon ossifies, it turns to bone. It loses its flexibility. It becomes rigid. NLP was originally all about adaptiveness, all about requisite variety, all about behavioral flexibility. And yet it seems to have stagnated and perhaps even ossified. Okay, so we see that ossification in all these NLP like protocols that come out of procedures, step one, step two, step three, step four, people just doing that. They're They've got no flexibility around it, right? Ossification, the flexibility is lost. We see an ossification around the older material. It's like, well, that old stuff is NLP, what Richard Banner and John Grinder came out with. They were modeling. Who's modeling now? Who's doing modeling? Who's still using modeling? Where are the new NLP models? They're not really there. They're not that common. One exception to that is the fantastic modeling that uh, Penny Tompkin and James Lawley did with Clean Language, modeling David Grove. They were NLPers. They used what they learned about modeling from NLP to create that model clean language. But they chose to make that its own thing rather than add it to the sort of NLP canon, so to speak. But, you know, the other thing that sort of got ossified is the kind of consciousness, the kind of renderings, right? Like the reality tunnel that NLP comes from itself. So you've still got all those inorganic metaphors, this kind of thing. Nobody's changing the metaphors. They're afraid if they change the metaphors, if they reshape the consciousness of NLP, that it won't be NLP anymore. So they end up protecting it like it's a museum piece, but it degrades. It degrades as we go. I've got a parallel for this in uh, Chinese martial arts, by the way. Like, I've been a student of Chinese martial arts since my early 20s. And there's a spate of instances on YouTube on, and on Chinese social media initially of traditional Chinese martial arts masters getting their butts kicked by uh, MMA fighters like over and over again in seconds, like literally not even beginning to be able to begin to hold their own. The first major one of these masters was a practitioner of Tai Chi Chuan. Tai Chi Chuan means supreme ultimate fist. The founder of Tai Chi Chuan, arguably, was Yang Lu Chan, who was known as Yang the Invincible. Back in the 1850s, he got such a reputation in Beijing, he was hired by the royal court uh, to teach like nobles and, and staff there and bodyguards and this kind of thing. His fighting prowess was legendary. But those who have tried to preserve his art, because they have not allowed his art to live and breathe and evolve, they have tried to preserve it as a museum piece. It has lost its functionality within context. It has ossified. Yes. 
there's some of the DNA of the original beautiful, powerful, adaptive, flexible, and real fighting art. But now it's gone so far from that, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, disconnected from environments in which it could really live. It's ossified. So people who try and preserve that museum piece, they think they're preserving Taiji Chuan. They're not. They're destroying it. Now, I think there's a similar, oh, by the way, if you look at MMA, it's all about functionality. Okay, there's a rule set, there's a context, but within that, it's free to evolve and adapt. And nobody says you must or mustn't do things in a certain way. You can evolve your own style to meet and fix the problems that come up within the context. So you get some people who are more striking orientated, more grappling orientated. They're able to bring their own living style to it. Okay, which is why MMA beats Taiji Chuan every single time. One of them's a dead museum piece where the practitioners are interested in the preservation of the traditions. The other one is a live, vibrant, dynamic art constantly in evolution. If NLP remains a museum piece to be preserved, if it remains entrenched in its own dogma and all we're doing is producing another copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, it dies. It's over. It's finished. It ceases to be relevant. So for NLP to stay relevant, it has to stay alive. What some people fear is if you allow it to be too alive and you allow too much new stuff to come in, too much development, too much evolution, maybe it stops being NLP. Well, maybe it does. But is it more important that it remains NLP or is it more important that it realizes even more effectively all that it was originally intended to realize, right? You know, it's all about adaptiveness, all about flexibility, but if it cannot be adaptive and flexible in itself, then it's a betrayal of one of its own fundamental tenets. So there was a joke, NLP joke that somebody told me years ago. He said, the problem with NLP is that it's stuck in its own first position. Now, if you're not laughing right now, that's because it's an NLP joke and NLP jokes are rarely funny. And they are at best clever, and they are only clever if you're a real NLP geek. But what it means, stuck in its own first position, one of the basic ideas of NLP or an important idea in NLP is the ability to take different perceptual positions. Okay, and the first position that you're in is where you're at right now, like before you've moved your mind to any other perspective. It's where you are coming from initially, the first position. Okay, so NLP has got stuck in its own first position. Its own first position is the stuff that was developed by the founders, the dogma, you know, that's come out of the teachings of the 1970s and the 1980s. And I think what's more important than the dogma is the spirit, that the spirit of NLP continues and that that is allowed to express itself in new and different ways. The people continue to model, continue to learn, continue to grow. So speaking for myself, like if somebody said to me, James, are you still an NLP guy? For years, I've said no. In fact, I spoke at the NLP Superfest maybe eight years ago in Melbourne, Australia. And I was sat down next to Frank Puslick. And he was speaking also. And I went up to do my presentation. And I can't remember what my presentation topic was. I do know that I had for the first and only time when public speaking, a complete moment of brain freeze and blanking as I stared out at the audience. And part of the reason was, is I was about to give my opinions on NLP in front of one of the guys who founded NLP, right? I got this complete brain freeze moment. I unfroze my brain 
by using NLP methods. I started just pacing and leading and got into flow. Now, in the framing of that talk, I made it clear to people that I didn't want to be seen as a representative of NLP, that anything I said was not to be taken as truth, and that I didn't, in fact, even see myself as an NLP guy anymore, that NLP was simply where I'd come from. It'd been significant in my development. So I said, don't take any of this as being gospel about NLP. What I'm going to be sharing with you are my approaches to helping people create the changes they want to create in their lives. And then I went on, I did my presentation. Now afterwards, I sat back down next to Frank and a whole bunch of people came over to talk to me. And Frank was there as well. And somebody turned to Frank and said, Frank, I'd love to get your perspective on something. And he said, yeah, sure. He said, James said that he wasn't really an NLP guy anymore. But what do you think? You know, when James was up there, was he using NLP? And Frank said, well, I've just seen James using spatial anchoring, nested loops, analog marking, and, you know, went on through a list of things that he just observed me doing that were like really core NLP skill things. He said, so yeah, it looks like NLP to me. Now, I wasn't thinking about using any of those things. They're just so embedded in my ways of being and ways of communicating that they came out, right? So, you know, I can't ever get NLP out of my system. But I don't want an ossified NLP in my system. Not for myself. I don't want that. Right? I want my NLP to be alive and adaptive. Now, I've also, since moving out of my big NLP phase, I engage with other people, other powerful communicators, other powerful mind shifters, right? Other people who were adept at dancing results out of reality, who had no background in NLP whatsoever. And I got the chance to be with these people and learn from these people and I guess model these people. Because once that modeling habit's in the system, it's hard to get out. And so all that I learned and all that I modeled has folded back into all that I do. But all that I do in that sense, in that area of communication, mind shifting, developing more adaptive patterning, it's all based in NLP anyway, right? So I don't know anymore. Am I doing NLP? Am I not doing NLP? I don't know. But for me, I value it highly. And I'm kind of back out of retirement. As I've said, I'm doing this training in February. I'm calling it adaptive NLP. But what I'm not doing is holding on tightly to these old school NLP reality tunnels or renderings of reality. I'm not holding on to a lot of the techniques that have fallen out of the back of it that I don't necessarily think are that good. What I'm looking to do is hold on to the spirit of NLP, that spirit that brings alive possibility, that spirit that enables people to develop themselves and their range of expression in their engagements with the world. That is the thing that's important to me. And that is what I'm going to be doing in this five-day immersive in uh, February. And, and this isn't all about, you know, plugging this. I know that people are going to go, ah, James, you're doing it to plug this. It's one of the reasons I'm doing it now. That's not what this podcast is about. But, you know, if you fancy diving into an experience of neurolinguistics, adaptive neurolinguistics, perhaps coming from the reality tunnel that I have now around it, developing some real skills, some real adaptiveness, some real flexibility, Coming out of the experience, seeing the world differently and seeing different possibilities in the world, because that is my outcome for this training, then uh, you'll find some link around here. You can find out more about that. Aside from that, back to this episode, this podcast, if you've liked this, please do give it a thumbs up. I know this has been a long, long episode, this one, but if you're still here and you like this, please do give it a thumbs up. Please do rate it, review it on the platform you're listening on. 
And if you want to engage with me, please do make sure you're subscribed to Agents of Everything on Substack, where this podcast is published. Uh, you can ask me questions via the comments there. And if you want to take a step beyond that, you can join me for the monthly Agents of Everything Nexus calls. And you can find out about that around and about as well. Okay, I'm going to check out now, but I do look forward to when we next connect.